Welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. Welcome to this week's episode of People First. And my guest this week is Scott Mouts. Scott is a keynote speaker and author. He's a veteran from Procter & Gamble and successfully ran several of the company's largest multi-billion dollar businesses. He's an award-winning, best-selling author. And we're going to be talking about his book, Leading from the Middle, a playbook for managers to influence up, down and across the organization. And when he's not writing, when he's not speaking, when he's not a guest on People First, he's also faculty at Indiana's University, uh, Indiana University's Kelly School of Business for Executive Education. He's a former top Inc.com columnist and a frequent national publication and podcast guest. So Scott, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. I appreciate your show and what you're doing. The world needs it. So Oh, well, I love that. And I'm glad that our worlds cross because um, we both had an article published in the American Management Association's uh, quarterly magazine. Yours is the surprising key to getting returned to the office right. So we'll talk a little bit about those insights. But I do want to go back to the beginning. So, Scott, cast your mind back. You're in elementary school and the teacher's walking up and down between the desks. And she says, Scott, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your answer back then? Back then, it was, I want to you know, hold on to your hands for this one here. The answer was, I want to be an anthropologist. And I want to be the, um, you know, I want to be a scientist that gets to also collect fossils and look at dinosaur bones way back when. So you can so see how I ended up where I am. It's pretty obvious. Well, yeah, there's there's one thing to be collecting dead fossilized bones of uh, extinct animals, but the anthropologists and studying the human, well, you kind of do that. I wanted to do both, yes. You wanted to do both. So what was the pivot point then that brought you to Procter Gamble leadership and authors? Yeah, it's a terrific question. And it really started uh, probably earliest in my college days when I found out how much I enjoyed leadership positions. And by the way, by the by college, I'd gotten rid of the anthropology and also wanting to dig up dinosaur bones thing and uh, had started to, to believe I was interested in marketing. Okay. And by, you know, by my college years, I found that when I took leadership positions on campus, uh, much as I'm sure many of your, your listeners do, I discovered just how much I was in love with the concept of trying to lead and lead from the heart and trying to lead the way that I would have wanted it to have been led. And so the, the first seeds were planted in college, and then the, then it really blossomed, and the pivot really started to happen when I had my first internship with Procter & Gamble. They recruited me out of uh, Indiana University, where I now teach. And um, I got a chance to really see what a leadership manufacturing giant like P&G, you know, I got a chance to go in and see what leadership looks like there. And I was hooked from that point mm -hmm. on. Ever since then, I knew I, knew I was, was going to have to do the, you know, pivot to that. So what does good leadership look like for you? Yeah, to me, I, you know, and it's so interesting, Mark. It's so funny. I bet if you asked 70 guests, you'll get 70 different answers. And all I can do is, you know, share what, what I've experienced in my life. I think great leadership, the best leaders are someone that they create meaning for their employees uh, to mm -hmm. create the truest sense of motivation. They, they consciously care. They decide and then they communicate the decision. They set a vision and connect the dots, and then and then they practice what I call relaxed intensity, uh, which is uh, meant to be a juxtaposition on, on purpose. 
it's kind of the uh, my take on the work hard, play hard. You know, I, I really believe in any work environment I ever created as a leader, how important it was to really relax, have fun, show that uh, you're there for more than just work. But at the same time, you don't want to be a part of a team of lovable, lovable losers. It's also a good idea to have some intensity to show, yeah, but we also win and we're a championship yeah. team. And when you blend the two of them together, I found it to be very powerful. Oh, you are speaking to my heart because at Sky Team, we have eight corporate values. Four of them are connected to the word fun. But to your <laughs> point, it's not that it's just a boondoggle and we enjoy who we hang out with and our clients and so on and the work we do. I love your relaxed intensity because it has to be fun with a purpose. That's right. Or a fun to take that pause to recharge and run that next mile or achieve that next goal. That's right. All right. So what are some of the common mistakes then in your years, whether it's Procter or Gamble or the work that you've been doing, what are some of the common, um, I was going to say pratfalls, but it's my podcast, so I can. But the common (laughs) mistakes that you see leaders making over and over again, where you just go, really? You thought that was a good idea? (laughs) Well, you know, a lot of it boils down to, uh, I'm sure like you, uh, you know, I'm sure like you, you done a fair amount of coaching in your life. And, and I, a lot of it boils back to the number one thing I found myself coaching executives on my team for, which was stop chasing approval, start chasing authenticity. And I would see it over and over again, how behaviors would morph in this warped need in a corporate world to fit into the mold, to want to get that promotion, to want to get the corner office, to want to you know, be what our boss thinks that we should be. And people begin to lose, lose themselves. And I call it the waterfall effect. It kind of all flows mm-hmm. downhill as everybody starts to change their behavior. And that drop of water that falls on them, the drop below inevitably changes the course of that piece of water that drops down the waterfall. And, and we lose sight of ourselves. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I always find that when leaders step back and they're willing to be authentic, they're willing to chase their, their authentic selves, be vulnerable, be open, admit what they don't know, surround themselves with experts. It just creates a purity of intent, Morgan. It creates a purity of, of focus that can solve a lot of the ails within leadership ranks. Do you find this to be true? Oh, I agree. I was thinking back to your earlier comment about ask 70 people for the, what does make it a great leader look like, and you get 70 answers. Well, I know because I often do this, I'll Google the word leadership and you get <laughs> billions of results of which oh, yeah. you and I have obviously contributed to those results. But even if you start to define it down to great leadership, or in my case, freaking awesome leadership, <laughs> you still end up with a ridiculous number of results. That's right. And I think that comes back to, okay, there's a lot written and pontificated about what it looks like. We know what good looks like. And we know what suck looks like because we complain about it at the end of the day. But what you've just said about being authentic is, what's your, what's my definition? And where does that overlap like a Venn diagram with the corporate values? And if there isn't a big enough overlap, then you're not going to feel like you fit in. It's going to feel awkward, in which case find a different pond to swim in. But also you don't have to go for 100% overlap because then it becomes inauthentic. And that has its own ripple effects, as you so eloquently described, with the drips of water coming down. Yeah, I think so. And 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 then when we don't, when we end up chasing approval and we and we ditch mm-hmm. authenticity, we begin to, you know, we just begin to engage in behaviors that are less than transparent. And you know, I, I wonder, have you ever account, have you personally ever encountered anything that's more transparent than when someone's not being transparent? 
Well, your spidey sense goes off. I mean, there's so much research that we know there's a problem. You know, when you walk into a room and you just know something's up without talking to somebody and the same happens, you'll be sitting with somebody and saying, well, they're saying all the right things, but my spidey sense says hidden agenda, danger, Will Robinson. That's right. That's right. And I I don't think we give enough credit to our fellow human beings that they can pick up on our baloney. And so, you know, I'm really big on, you know, the, the spirit when, you know, I get, I'm sure like you, I get asked all the time, the key to leadership and there's lots of answers, but that well, that's one that comes from the heart is just stay focused on authenticity, stop chasing approval and watch watch what happens. So ditch the baloney and be true to yourself, which brings me to your book then. So Leading from the Middle, a playbook for managers to influence up, down and across the organization. So it may be an obvious question and answer. What was the inspiration for focusing on this layer of leadership and management? Yeah, I think so, you know, and to make sure that your listeners understand, when I say middle manager, you know, sometimes, you know, more people say, oh, yeah, well, well, that's not me. I'm too higher in the organization. I'm too low in the organization. A middle manager is anyone who has a boss and is a boss and Mm -hmm. has to lead from the messy middle up, down, and across the organization to be able to do their job well, Mm -hmm. which means it's most of us. And even if you aspire to have a, a, a middle manager position someday or to be a boss of others someday, that, you know, that makes you a candidate for the, the content contained in my book, Leading from the Middle. And what inspired me to write this was really just through my journey at Procter & Gamble and as I began to write uh, on the side and study other companies for my uh, all the articles and research now that I do at Indiana University, I just it's just a, an unmet need. Just mm-hmm. the dynamics that are created. And you have to think about this for a second. When you're a middle manager, you are at the intersection of the horizontal and the vertical information and activity flow in the company. Yep. And because of that dynamic to have to manage your boss and your boss's boss, to have to manage the people that report to you, and to have to influence peers over whom you have no formal authority, that creates very unique problems to be able to solve. And I saw that, you know, there's 10,000 books out there about, you know, the C-suite or people on the front line. I had a hard time finding books that were specifically designed for the backbone of any organization, the heroes mm-hmm. of the organization, the, the folks in the middle. And I, I agree. I was in our pre-episode conversation. I was talking. I liken it to being between the rock and a hard place. Yeah. Because you've got the expectations of the bosses down on you, saying, "Make this happen." Yes. You've got people looking up to you, saying, "Well, tell us how." And then you've got the coordination that needs to happen horizontally. And to your point, unsung heroes often and heroines in terms of the skill set that is needed. So and, you, and the results they produce. I didn't mean mm-hmm. to cut you off, but you know, our research showed that, you know, middle managers account for just over 25% of the variation in revenue in any company. That's three times more than someone who's specifically in an innovation role. So the yeah. book goes into just layer upon layer of how they produce the results that we need. That's why they're the heroes, not just out of, you know, from my heart that I think they are. The data proves that they are. So I'm sorry, you were going to say. No, well, and I think that's a key point because my experience is that can often be the the leadership or career level that gets the least investment, care and attention in helping to ensure that they're set up for success. So in reading the book, Leading from the Middle, what are our audience going to learn that's going to help them to elevate their leadership reputation and impact? Yeah, they're going to learn the unique 
issues and challenges that a middle manager faces. And I'll come back and touch on just one of those. Mm -hmm. And it might be surprising to your audience. So they'll learn the unique challenges that the middle manager faces and why this book is necessary. They're going to learn the mindset and the skill set that we learned in our research of over 3,000 successful middle managers, ones that were deemed by upper management to be stars in their company and heroes by their peers and admired by their employees. What is it? What did the mindset and the skill set of those folks look like? And then they're going to learn very specifically, you know, the subtitle, the, the book's title is Leading from the Middle, but the subtitle is very telling. It's a playbook for middle managers to influence up, down, and across the organization. Mm -hmm. So they're going to get very specific, very specific detailed step-by-step -step on how to lead up to your boss through something I call the managing up staircase, how to lead down to the employees by having great coaching conversations, being able to give transformative feedback, Yo. how to identify their opportunity areas, and how to influence across and influence peers over whom they have no formal authority, as well as learn one of the toughest challenges of a middle manager, how to lead through change all in specific playbook format. It is perfect timing because 2020 and the COVID curveball, we're all going through change. Oh. And we all, I mean, your AMA article about the uh, surprising key to getting, going back or return to the office, right. And of course, we're all getting ready to go back to the office. And now it's, no, actually, please stay where you are. So the change and the churn and the stress and the turmoil, this is everything that these middle managers are having to navigate through. So what are some of those surprising challenges that you said you were going to share with oh, us? Oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just share, just to give an idea of, you know, it's interesting, Mark. Most people will say, okay, I got it. I know the top challenge of a middle manager. This one's easy. If you're, up your inner, if you're at the intersection of horizontal and information flow and activity and vertical, it's got to be the workload, right? We're all overwhelmed. And yeah, for sure, our data shows that's a, that's a sizable problem. But it's not even close, statistically significantly speaking, from our data, not even close to the top challenge which is what we call self-identity issues that middle managers have. And this is born from the number of hats that you have to wear. You're always constantly putting on different hats and playing different roles. And it creates what neuroscientists call micro-switching issues. Mm. Here's how it plays out. You have to always be on the move. You have to switch very quickly from a mode of being authoritative with your employees to deferential to your boss to collaborative with your peers sometimes all in the same meeting. And then you have to jump into a role where you weren't expecting to play in that moment mentally. You're in a meeting, a team meeting, and the boss jumps in to observe, and now all of a sudden you have to change. You go from moments of high autonomy where you feel like, I'm really empowered here, to moments within the same meeting, same day mm -hmm. at least, where you're like, nah, I'm just a cog in the wheel. You go from moments of you're making tons of decisions to where you step back and you realize, yeah, but they're not any of the decisions that are really molding and shaping things. This constant micro switching is exhausting. Right. And it drains the energy of the middle manager. And we found that that probably, I mean, I think it's unknown to most people, but the data showed very clear. It's one of the top challenges that middle managers face. So that's interesting because to me comes to mind two levers to pull. One is how do I therefore control and compartmentalize the micro switching? Yeah. So can I block time to be big picture and then block time to be in the weeds, et cetera? But then it's the awareness of doing that. And then how the second lever would be, so if it's, emo if it's draining and exhausting, how do I refill my energy levels? We so found, yeah, we found the most successful middle managers 
do it by thinking of the middle manager role differently in the nature of their very switching behavior to begin with. So for example, uh, it was very clear in the data, we found that successful middle managers, we, we heard this theme over and over again. And uh, a manager in Minnesota put it this way, and I wrote it down. She told me she thinks of her job and all the switching she has to do, the hundred hats that she has to wear, they're all, they're not separate jobs. They're all blended into one job that she's uniquely suited to do that she feels privileged to do. And she thinks about her job as she has to think like an engineer and feel like an artist. And I thought that was brilliant to step back and say, wait a minute, I'm the, I'm in the middle. I have to keep the machine moving. I have to have the processes and the operating structure at the same time. I have to have the empathy to understand what everybody, what's happening to everybody all around me. We heard another middle manager reframe it as she saw that her job was, was really to be the lighthouse, which is to really keep people away from the short term danger and the rocks all around them and be a beacon and a vision for people long-term on the horizon to look for and to shoot for. We heard another one say that they, she felt that her job was to be to work on the business and in the business, <laughs> on the business for the long-term haul in the business to make the details work day to day. So we saw this constant reframing of people that re-energize themselves in their job as middle manager by not thinking of it as a hopeless situation filled with a hundred different jobs that they oh. had to master each and every yes. one. I love that because that goes back to the multiple definitions again. With each of those different metaphors, people reframing it in a way that works for them. And it's, I love the art and science. I wrote a, an article a while back about the art and science of leadership. But the visual metaphor that sprung to mind for me, I may have to use this in my programs going forward, <laughs> was good. the beach ball. Because the role of the middle manager is that white disc at the top, and then you have all the stripes that go around the side, the engineering, the whatever it might be. And your role is not to get into those, but to bridge them all. And then I closed out my mental image of the beach ball with, and you've got to have some bounce. So you can't be the flat, squishy beach like ball. <laughs> but yeah, so that one works for me. But whether it's the lighthouse metaphor or it's the I'm balancing art and science, what you're sharing there is I'm being intentional about which hat. What do I need to wear in this moment for this person or this team or this project or this decision? That's right. And to take pride in that as well. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so many people become overwhelmed with a number of hats instead of stepping back to think like you made it to that position for a reason. And what a wonderful gift to be able to influence, you know, you're not stuck in the middle, you have a chance to influence in every direction. And if you can view the, the role as a supremely huge opportunity to have an influence in 360 you know, degrees, mm -hmm. it really changes the way you approach your job. So you touched there, I mean, I'm reading between the lines on imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Recognize you've been promoted for a reason, <laughs> But in that moment where you're feeling overwhelmed and you're going like, why me? So do you touch on that at all in Leading from the Middle? How to, how to step into your truth and that level of responsibility with confidence, even when you don't know the answer? Yes, I, I do. In, in a roundabout way, you know, what I would say here is one of the biggest, we all know this, one of the biggest things we fall victim to is our inner chatter and it just starts mm -hmm. to kick in and it tells us we don't belong here. And it tells us, you know, and I, <clears throat> one of the things I often really, I talk about is taking a self-compassion break and it's based okay. on three steps. Uh, um, if I may quickly mm, walk through that. Yeah. Uh, and I find it to be a very powerful release 
for this, this constant beating up that we do of ourselves, where we convince ourselves that we're not good enough. The first step is, of course, to get better at catching yourself in that moment. I teach the opposite, and I still catch myself spiraling down sometimes. But you got to catch yourself in that moment and then not beat yourself up for beating yourself up. Step two is to talk to yourself in that moment when you catch yourself wailing on yourself. Imposter syndrome is kicking in. I don't belong here. I'm a loser. I said the wrong thing in that meeting. In that meeting, in that moment, catch yourself and talk to yourself like you would talk to a friend in need. If a friend came up to you to say, oh man, I want to tell you about something that happened in a meeting. I really blew it. And they were clearly looking for empathy. You wouldn't listen to their story for five minutes and then conclude it with, okay, I've heard you friend. And I've come to the conclusion that you're a complete loser. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. Uh, I guess unless if they're a friend of like 50 years and you can, you know, hammer, but by the most part, you wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, then the third step kind of rounds that out uh, with what I call the 90-10 rule. And the 90-10 rule is a very powerful tool for, it's a formula, a ratio for how you should value yourself, which is to say it should be based 90% on self-worth, 10% on assigned worth. 90% of how you value yourself should be based on self-appreciation, self-love, self-respect, 10% on assigned worth, what other people think of you and uh, the external validation we need every day. And sometimes people will say when I share that more, yeah, Scott, but shouldn't you be teaching the 100-0 rule that 100% of what you think about yourself and how you value yourself should come only from you? I think that's a nice theory, mm -hmm. but I think in reality as human beings, we need that 10% every now and then, that external validation slice to tell us that we're worthy and worthwhile that were, you know, appreciated and valued. And the problem arises, um, and then I'll turn it back to you for your reaction. The problem arises when in our formula, the 90, you know, the 90 versus the 10, that 10% external becomes 80, 90, 100% of how we value ourselves. And we become, the, you know, imposter syndrome just takes over because now, not only do we think we don't belong, we assess whether or not we belong based 100% on what, how other people feel about whether or not we yeah. belong or not. And that's where the trouble really really kicks in. And that can be some of the scourge of social media because I'm only yeah. seeing the glossy, smiley side of everybody's life and not necessarily behind the curtain. That's and right. of course, I, uh, there's a brilliant Reed Hastings quote, um, don't to uh, tolerate brilliant jerks because the cost of teamwork is too high. And so <laughs> if we were to go to that hundred zero of I value myself and hang the rest of you, then that could result, if I'm not getting that outside validation, if I'm turning into a brilliant jerk, but I don't, you know, I believe that's the right way, then I'm go I'm not going to have that sense of community and team. That's right. And if I'm a middle manager, as you and I know, with that influencing piece, we're not going to get the results that are needed. That's right. So I like the 90-10 or at least some balance, but it can't be weighted outside only or disproportionately outside. That's right. That's I have exactly. to remember that next time I'm stuck in the doldrums. So what are you currently working on then? You've, you've had a successful career in corporate. You've pub a successful author sought out for your leadership expertise. But in your own leadership journey, where are you and what are you working on and what are you checking the box on? For me right now, uh, I, I've been spending a lot of time. And Maura, you can tell me, if, I'm going to suspect this may also apply to you. You know, the in my business, you know, I left corporate uh, five, six years ago now, to do this full-time. Speak, write, teach, uh, teach courses, train, educate. And all of that got disrupted when COVID hit and we had to pivot to mm -hmm. primarily an online world. And it's still, you know, there's still, I would still say, 
80% of my events in the next for the next year are going to be virtual um, yeah. with, with all the issues that we're going through as a society right now. And so I've had to, in my learning journey, you know, I've had to pivot to be able to figure out how to deliver and achieve my mission of helping everyone else become, you know, slightly better version of themselves to become better leaders and to become, you know, more potent in, as a self-leadership. I've had to learn how to do that in a virtual world. I've had to learn how to bring on the technology and how to deliver cadence and how to deliver a great experience in an online world mm -hmm. to still be able to deliver everything that uh, that I want to deliver. I'm sure you've experienced a lot of the same. Oh, yeah. My team and I last March, and I'll be honest, before the pandemic, I was a real skeptic of virtual facilitation. I saw it as you want to be a better human, you need to do it in a room with other humans. Well, that <laughs> option was withdrawn. So we've got the full light camera action. We can do all of the, the creativity. It's amazing just how well it's transformed. I'm passionate about it now, you know, with the music, the breakout rooms, using technology for that collaborative experience and the whiteboards. So it's amazing what we've been able to replicate. And when it's facilitated skillfully, it really does elevate the experience. It does. And when it isn't, I've sat through some Zoom calls and stuff where you just want to poke your eye out and you're thinking, <laughs> no. But it's something where you've got to up your game. And just having a camera and a microphone is table stakes. And if you That's want to it. learn more, then, well, by all means, call me. I'll happily share. But right. it is. It, it's uh, it's part of our repertoire going forward. And I'm looking forward to getting back to 3D. But like you, uh, my team and I are also planning for at least another year of 99.9% .9 of everything being virtual and yeah. rarely doing it in person in a hotel room or whatever, That's conference right. room with others. That's exactly right. And so we learn and we evolve, right? The mm -hmm. never-ending never journey. Yeah, well, that whole hybrid teams, which brings me to your AMA article. So the key to return to the office. And I'm curious, what advice in terms of the research and what you're hearing with the work you're doing with leaders, what are the top tips for leading and creating a sense of team in a hybrid environment where I might have some people coming into the office, but most are now still working through the camera? Yeah, I'll just share a few tips that I've been hearing as, a, and I'm sure like you, I've been doing a lot of work trying to understand this because obviously it's, I mean, it's the biggest disruption to work since the industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. And one, you know, one tip that always sticks with me, you know, I'd love to be able to take credit for it, but I can't because I've heard it multiple times now from people at high levels is to never forget in this hybrid work world to not create second class citizens mm -hmm. out of those who are going to be dialed in from a remote capacity and to in fact invert it and try to try to flip that around where you actually, you know, for the folks that are in the office and have chosen to be there or their job requires them to be there, to almost, you know, deprioritize, put them in second place for how fast you get back on requests, for how fast uh, you provide what they need and to flip it and to go overboard to deliver in a timely fashion to those that are uh, virtually linked in. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying now reverse it and make second class citizens out of those who are in the office. That's not what I'm saying. I just think if you flip the mindset and you serve those who are distant first, it creates balance much more easily than if you just weren't even thinking about that at all. That's So that'd be the first step. Does that, does that make sense to you? It does yeah. indeed. And it goes back to like the 20th century attitude or the jacket on the back of the chair being proof of your loyalty and therefore your promotability. Well, one thing that going remote did is it leveled the playing field for those of us who are working in that type of environment. But the risk is presenteeism is not a sign of productivity, That's right. commitment, 
um, promotability, and we need to be deliberate around that. That's that's exactly right. Um, you know, another tip I keep hearing, Mark, is um, to you know, in the moment when you're trying to figure out, you're in a leadership dynamic. You know, <clears throat> like wow, what do I do in this case? This hybrid thing is so difficult. I'm trying to figure out what to do <clears throat> what to do. <clears throat> Just remember the acronym. You know. Um, you know, WWLW, what would leaders do? WWLD, what would leaders do? In other words, so much about the core tenets of leadership hasn't changed. And what we can do is focus on, okay, I'm in this new weird world where I have to, you know, worry about people on a video screen and I have to do this and I have to do that. And to start with leadership at its core, 80% is still leadership. And a lot of the instincts you had before and a lot of the things you felt you needed to work on as a leader before Um, are still very true in the remote world. Now, I'm not saying there's not things that tactical things that you can do. You you could start all the way high level to think, okay, leadership is still leadership. There's still tactical things that Mm -hmm. you can do. Like, you know, for me, uh, when any time I do a Zoom call, I'm actually violating the principle today. But usually I, I will stand up and I'll make sure that you can see at least from my body up so that you could see my arms, my body language. And yeah. research has been very clear that 60% of what we communicate is not from here. It's actually from our Whatever body motions. Yeah. yeah. And just trying to, you know, small things like uh, I've had leaders tell me they'll put a little picture of a group right next to the camera on their phone so that they can remember to look at the camera when they're talking. So you can try to make human connection. So it's not that there's not little tactical things we can do, but it's just coming back to remembering that leadership is still leadership, right? Does that make sense to you? It does. And I think it's being deliberate and thoughtful like you. I, I bring my hands up to, to gesticulate, <laughs> trying to bring humor, but also making sure what the leaders I'm coaching and working with are reporting is that the cracks that were there in the workplace but could be worked around in the break room conversations or just stopping by your desk have become exacerbated when we're working over time and distance. So to your point, keep doing the good stuff, but don't overlook the things that you know you should have been doing better in the office. You definitely need to be doing it better now. That's right. And then it's scheduling, because what's happening is this is creating more of a hub and spoke experience. We all get on the call, but it's one at a time. As much as side conversations were annoying in 3D uh, meetings and stuff, but it, it, it kept things moving. Here, it's one at a time, and it's usually boss to you, and then the next person reports out, and then there might be a bit of collaboration. So it's how do you recreate the horizontal relationships especially and make sure that you're not just getting on the call and saying, okay, Scott, where are you on the project down to business, (laughs) that we're spending a few minutes doing the how are you doing, not what are you doing, how are you feeling, how's the family, what's working, what's not. And linking back to your comment there, the WWLD, what would leaders do, to recognize that leadership's a contact sport. So you don't have to have all the answers. We're all learning how to do hybrid. So involve your team in talking about, we've been doing this now for 18 months, what's working, what's not? How do we need to renegotiate the rules of engagement for our team so that we can nurture that sense of team? So there was a lot there. You've sparked a lot of thoughts for me today, Scott. Yeah, that's that's why this this isn't easy. We're going to be in it a, a a bit longer. I just encourage your listeners to to remember that you're probably better at this hybrid leader thing mm-hmm. than you think you are if you yep. lead from the heart and use instincts first. Be authentic. So, Scott, <laughs> how can people learn more about you and the work that you're doing? 
<clears throat> oh, thank you for asking. They can go to uh, scottmouts.com, S-C-O-T-T-M-A-U-T-Z.com. And in fact, I put together a little uh, freebie for your audience today, Morag. If they go to scottmouts.com forward slash free tools, no space in between that, they'll get um, a 30-page companion workbook for free that goes along with my book, Leading from the Middle. Um, and it's, there's like over 80 questions in it there. I, I probably don't have to tell you, science has shown, when we have a chance to fill in the blanks, the process, to choose, to you know, engage in questions about material, we're much more likely to learn it. So I, I really wanted to provide that. So if they go to scottmouts.com forward slash free tools, they'll get that free 30-page companion workbook that goes along with leading from the middle. Scott, you have been an invaluable <laughs> guest. I look forward to inviting you back for future uh, episodes I'll make sure all that information is in the show notes. But in the meantime, I wish you and everybody you hold dear remain well and continued success. Thanks to you and thanks for what you do. Thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.